It's good seeing everybody. Everybody seems like in a good mood tonight, and I, I'm just excited for tonight because we're going to be talking about the power of praise. That's the, the message title for tonight, the, the power of praise or the power of worship. And we've talked about this a few times, but I just love touch, uh, touching upon it and talking about it because it's so crucial to the life of, of any believer. And just a quick thing about me, I remember being a new believer, and I didn't really like Christian music. This was back in the 90s, and just was kind of cheesy, you know, and I, I listened to rock and roll. I listened to some metal music. I was kind of an angsty teenager, and someone challenged me. They said, you know what, like, do a 30-day fast and just listen to worship music, and I kind of cringed at that idea. I'm like, man, I really don't want to do that, but, you know, I'm a kind of person that likes challenges, so, and, and I did that. I, I listened to Hillsong, and I did that for 30 days, and it changed my life. It, it, cha- it literally changed my affections because after that, it's like I didn't have the same desire for that kind of music. You know, Not that I, I didn't enjoy it or I stopped listening altogether to secular music, but I just didn't, it just didn't have the same influence or power, and I just felt a connection to God that I haven't experienced before. And even... Um, there was one time for, when Jeremy, for his bachelor party, we, we went to do, uh, we went to go Hillsong United concert, the Hollywood Bowls, like 15,000 people in L.A., and I think we, we worshipped for three hours. It was a long time, but after a certain point, like maybe after an hour and a half, two hours, it literally just felt like something just shift. You know, it was like, because you're in L.A., you know, there's a lot of things going on in L.A. It was like the the atmosphere over us just opened up, and, and we just worshiped and praised. And honestly, I could have just kept doing that for like six hours. And I was like on cloud nine for weeks just from that experience. And so I, I, that was very formative to me. And just beginning to, to experience the, the power of worship. And the thing is, I, I want to give this message because many new believers and even some seasoned ones don't understand the, the power of praise in our life. And even shockingly, I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, but many pastors today think that worship is just a warm-up for the message. I'm ashamed to say that. But many pastors just think, you know, we'll just sing a couple songs, get the crowd excited, get their emotions worked up, and... You know, they just think, oh, it's just a warm-up for the, the Word of God. Well, I hope that tonight's message will help us understand and get, give us some clarity onto the power of praise. It's, I think you can do a whole series on this, so I'm not going to touch everything. And it was really about uh, a couple years ago that, that uh, or one, one thing I want to share, this passage in Acts that, that really kind of shifted um, my thinking, because I've, I had, the, like I was saying earlier, I had those experiences with listening to worship music for 30 days. I had those experiences of Hillsong, but then someone actually pointed out in the Word of God what um, kind of what was happening, and it's in Acts 13, 2 to 3. It says, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to do. And after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. The NLT, which is the translation we're using tonight, translates ministering as worshiping. Now, I'm not sure if you caught this, but the disciples were ministering to the Lord. 
it didn't say that the Lord was ministering to them, but it was the other way around, which was a, a total shift in my thinking. See, they understood that their full-time occupation, our full-time occupation is this worship to God, and that all of ministry flows out of this place of worship, this place of intimacy with the Lord. I believe Jeff touched on this, that many Christians today, we think the church primarily exists for us. They think it's somebody else's job or the leader's job or the church's job or God's job to minister to them. And I don't discount that people need ministry. But what I'm trying to say is that what if we got it backwards? What if we have it completely backwards? And what if church service is primarily to minister to him, to minister to his heart, to offer up a sacrifice, offer up a, a worship that is pleasing unto him? Because if you look at that passage, they were just ministering to the Lord, and then the Holy Spirit began to work. The Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Saul and, and made them into apostles, and, and it began. It's just, I just think that maybe we've got something backwards in our lives. Even, even Randy, uh, one of the council members who, who teaches fairly recently, he always tells me that worship is the only thing God gets out of the service. So if you think about it, it's like that. If you think about it in the Old Testament, People used to bring animals, they used to bring grain sacrifices or olive oil to be burnt upon an altar. It would, it would cost them something, right? To take an animal from a flock, one of your best animals, and offer that up. But today, we're under a new covenant. We no longer offer sacrifices, uh, animal sacrifices, because Jesus was our final sacrifice. But we get to offer God what is called a sacrifice of praise. And I'll talk about that. See, praise doesn't cost us anything when we praise God after the answer comes, right? If you pray to God and you say, God, I want to win the lottery, and you win the lottery, and then you praise, praise him after that happens, that didn't really cost you anything. It truly becomes a sacrifice when we praise God before we see the answer we're waiting for. And that is very difficult. That's very hard for us to be in a place of thanks, to be in a place of adoration, even before the answer comes that we're waiting for. But we see this demonstrated by Habakkuk in chapter 3. He offers up his praise to God despite his circumstance and with the foreknowledge that Babylon is coming to bring disaster upon his nation. That's just crazy to think about. I can't imagine how Habakkuk could praise God knowing full well what God had revealed to him, that Babylon was going to be coming and just bringing complete disaster upon them, but taking them into exile. And yet he was in such a place of uh, worship to God that he was just uh, praising him in that moment. I can't believe that. Even what we see in chapter 1, he starts off in this place of despair. He, he's in this place of just complaining and we see tonight in chapter 3, he's just praising the Lord. So there's this transformation that happens in his life, and I believe it's that transformation when we take our eyes off of our circumstances and begin to praise him, we begin to worship him. It just, it completely changes our life, and it changes our heart. His prayer 
in chapter 3 is, is very similar to what we, what we see in the Psalms. Like, anybody love the, the book of Psalms here or read the Psalms? I love the Psalms because it's so brutally honest, and it's, it's just, it captures such a, it's a, a Psalm is really a, a poetic expression accompanied by music. They would, they would sing these things. They would recite them. And it's quite possible that Habakkuk's uh, prayer slash song was probably sung at gatherings, at temple gatherings. I'd like to say that there's something about poetry and music that can capture the essence of God that theology, theology books cannot. Now, I'm not trying to discount theology books. I think they're valuable. They're very important. I'm not saying they're inferior in any way. But it's like the difference between reading a scientific definition on love, what you might find in Webster's Dictionary, it's like that compared to reading a love letter of a man, of a man who's in love with his wife. There's just a, a difference. It has a, a way of capturing something, capturing um, a connection or an idea or an expression that is so hard to put into words. And what we're going to see is a, a snapshot of Habakkuk's love and praise of God. And so let's just jump right into the text, and we're going to have a few table talks, so we've got to get moving. This is Habakkuk's prayer. This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe at your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. See, worship brings to remembrance what God has done for us in the past. It, it brings us to the place of, of awe and awakens the deep need of his presence in our lives. It reminds us of his mercy even during difficult seasons or trials. And I actually believe that it's God's goodness, that it's God's goodness is the cornerstone of our faith. See, it's, it's very difficult to, to praise or to pray if we don't have a solid understanding of God's goodness in our lives. David understood this concept. He wrote in Psalm 27, 13, he says, Yet I am confident I will see that the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. David wasn't waiting until he died to see God's faithfulness, to see God's goodness. He was in a place of expectancy. He, he expected to see the Lord's goodness showing or revealed while he was living. I love that. But unfortunately, many Christians today, I, I see this happening throughout the, the body of Christ, is that many Christians today actually have more hope in death so that they can go to heaven than the goodness of God showing up in their present circumstances. You, you see that. And we've even kind of created some theologies about that, end-time theologies. It's like more Christians are excited about dying and being in heaven than the excitement of or the expectancy of seeing God's goodness show up in their present-day lives or even in the world. It's, it's like death is their Savior. It's not like Christ's death and resurrection and power is their Savior. It's just it's sad. But we ought to approach God with the confident expectancy of seeing his goodness for today and not for another time. In fact, we do that a lot. We call it the millennial reign of Christ. We put so many of the blessings in the millennial reign of Christ and we, and we 
fail to see that maybe possibly or a lot of those are for our time. But what about you guys? Let's, let's do a table talk real quick. Where do you want to see God's goodness in your life? Maybe it's in your relationships or health, your finances, circumstance, or a problem that you might have, etc. And just for the sake of time and because of the amount of people, just um, try to share in one minute or less for each person. So I'm going to give you guys five minutes. So go ahead and get started. <clears throat> All right, let's, let's bring it back. We're going to... We're going to keep reading our passage, and in the text tonight, it's very poetical, but he's going to be referencing kind of the Exodus, and so track with me on verse 3. He says, I see God moving across the deserts from Edom, the Holy One coming from Mount Paran. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens, and the earth is filled with His praise. His coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Rays of light, it's like lightning, flash from His hands, where His awesome power is hidden. So it's, I don't have a map up there, but it's pretty much talking about God moving from the wilderness, which is, was in between Egypt and Israel, and kind of, yeah, he was moving there, and he started with the Israelites there. And like I was saying, Habakkuk is referencing the Exodus, where God descends upon Mount Sinai, and he makes his covenant with Moses and the Israelites in the southern desert before they even go to the promised land. And I have this uh, kind of this picture, but the Lord's presence was like a cloud of smoke. His glory appeared as a consuming fire. Those who saw it in the camp, those who witnessed it, it actually says that they, they trembled at it. Now, I, I can't imagine what it looked like if it looked like some kind of volcano or just a fire tornado or just a cloud or something crazy, but literally the, the earth around them was shaking, and there was this large, uh, this horn blast, these sounds, this sound, and this, and this amazing appearance which they probably have never seen in their life, which is just crazy that that represented, or that was, the, the presence of God. Stephen and Will, uh, our two bass players here at Journey, they, they had a similar experience like this. They said that they were driving in the mountains in, in Death Valley, and they were driving off-road, so they had their tires deflated, and, and now they're going to go back on the road, so they need to air up their tires. And, and as they begin airing up their tires, they, they see some clouds in the distance, you know, some storm clouds. And, and very quickly after that, the, the clouds came in, and the rain started pouring down, and, and, and they began hearing thunder and lightning and, and just seeing it. And it was so loud and frightening because it was, it, it was like right upon them. They thought that they weren't going to be able to make it. Even uh, Will, he's like, man, I thought I was going to die. It was that scary because they were high up in the mountains. There was nothing to, nothing to you know, they, they were probably the closest thing to the, the earth. That's frightening. I mean, we don't have thunderstorms or lightning storms necessarily here, but anybody comes from a place of uh, lightning or thunder or or a place like that, it's, it's so powerful. It's amazing. But sometimes we, we view God as a frail elderly man. You know, you see these pictures. He looks like Mr. Rogers or Grandpa. But he has so much power. You know, even in the Azusa Street Revival, I know we've said this many times, but they say that God's presence manifested so powerfully that the fire department showed up thinking it was a fire. It was, there was like smoke billowing and, and things happening. 
That's crazy, and I think it happened multiple times. That's just, that's insane to think about God's presence in that way. But the, the point I'm trying to make is about worship is that worship directs our gaze onto the presence of God. I'm convinced that without God's presence, our worship just becomes routine. That our prayers become what the New Testament writers refer to as vain repetition. And our sermons get reduced to a mere history lesson about an old glory. It's God's presence that releases power into our lives, into our circumstance, into our world. I mean, think about it. You know, Muslims pray. They pray five times a day. Buddhists, they have their meditations. There's, there's New Age. There's all kinds of spiritual practices out there. And sometimes it can seem very similar, and that's why the world gets confused. They're like, oh, well, Muslims pray. You know, everybody's praying to the same God. I mean, the, the only thing that makes us different than any other religion is that we have the presence of Jesus. It's the presence of Jesus in the prayer. It's the presence of, of Jesus in our worship or even how he can anoint the words of, of a preacher or someone like Billy Graham who would fill stadiums, not because he was intelligent, not because he, he was saying something that was so necessarily wise, God anointed his words and filled stadiums using that man with the very simple gospel message. It's the presence of God. I mean, that's the only thing that makes us different than anybody else. And sometimes I, I believe we, we, you know, we get so distracted and we, and we think it's about other things when really it's his presence. It's so powerful. And I know for some of you guys, you guys experienced the presence of God, and it changed your life like it's changed mine. And let's do another table talk. Describe a time that you've experienced the presence of God. What was it like? How did it make you feel? How would you even explain it to someone that never has experienced it? And let's do uh, another five minutes or so. So go ahead. Isn't God's presence so amazing? You know, I've, I've heard of stories of people going to church their whole life, right, hearing hundreds and hundreds of sermons, and one moment of his presence just, it makes it all real. It, it just completely changes them. Now, I'm not trying to discount sermons or church services or anything like that. I think they're valuable. We have to learn the Word of God and not simply rely on experiences like that, because they are amazing, but I really believe that we're supposed to rely on the Word of God and and discipline ourselves in the word daily. But when you have an experience with God, with his presence, like, it's so indescribable. I think I, I shared, I had this, it was like this dream when I was sleeping of just experiencing his peace, right? Jesus, the, the Prince of Peace. And I'm telling you, if I could bottle that, if I could bottle what I felt or the experience that I felt and sell it, I would be, I would be a, a billionaire, if I could, you know, there's no drug, no anything, no experience on the face of the earth that can even match that. In fact, you know, I, I believe they're, they're counterfeits. You know, that's why people, they, they use drugs or they, you know, they do, they do things because it's, it's almost like a counterfeit to his presence. Because his presence, it says in his presence is the fullness of joy. It's, that's what it feels like. It's, it's amazing. And I'll pray that... Um, that you have an encounter like that or begin to pray and ask God, like, God, I want to I know that you're real.
But moving on, we move on to, we're in verse 5. And it says, pestilence marches before him. Plague follows close behind. When he stops, the earth shakes. When he looks, the nations tremble. He shatters the everlasting mountains and levels the internal hills. He is the eternal one. I see the people of Kushan in distress and the nation of Midian trembling in terror. That kind of seems kind of scary, right? Pestilence and, and plague. Like, what? Like, I didn't learn that in, in, uh, in Bible school. I didn't learn that in uh, Kids Rock. But what Habakkuk is describing is the ten plagues that God sent against Egypt because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Remember, let my people go and he didn't listen? Well, God had to use some persuasion, as I would call it. See, God has complete power over creation. Even mountains are like dust that can be blown away. An event that kind of comes to mind of thinking of mountains being level was... uh, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. I think I have a before picture. You know, he had this nice, beautiful mountain, I think in Washington. And then after this uh, eruption, it just, it get completely, just completely changed uh, the mountain. I think it was one of the first scientifically recorded events of a mountain of that kind of destruction. I mean, uh, modern scientific. But Scientists saw how processes that they thought took thousands or millions of years literally help, uh, happen in seconds. Like this valley and all these things form. It's like it happened in seconds. And it was just so powerful, the demonstration of that. So God has the power to, to level entire mountains. I mean, he could do that. But sometimes we struggle with the faith that he can move mountains in our personal life. Right? Maybe it's easy to believe that. We, we see it or have examples of that. But it's a lot harder to believe he can move the mountains in, in our life. And the key I want to share of worship in this part is worship takes the focus off our mountain, the mountain that we're standing in front of, and onto God. See, we often fall into the trap of thinking we can find a solution by looking at our problem from every angle and letting it consume our world. It's like we have this problem, and we're, we have to look at it at this angle, then we have to kind of back up and look at it at that angle or look at it from this side. Is anybody like that? You just have to overthink it and kind of analyze it, the problem. And yet what happens is that the, the problem becomes bigger than God. Our, our tension b- gets off of God and onto this, this problem, and it, it's just like we begin to have hopelessness. We begin not to see a solution. And I wrote here, until God's presence becomes more real than our problem, we will never see the answer. I'll say that again. Until God's presence becomes more real than our problem, we will never see the answer. I was thinking of a story in the Bible that I I shared a message one time of of the crippled man who'd laid there for like decades. It was at the the pool beside her. And like Jesus had to literally shake him out of his broken identity. He had, he had to ask him, like, do you want to be made well? See, what happens is that sometimes we, we get so wrapped up in our problems and our issues that it, it becomes our identity. And like we, 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 can't, we can't have, um, like we no longer hope. We no longer see any kind of um, way out. In fact, I was talking to um, 
a psychologist, a clinician who works with um, all sorts of different people. And he was saying that if he can get one of his clients, if he can get somebody to be thankful and to get someone to be hopeful, it will literally change their brain chemistry. It will, it will radically, it changes their brain chemistry. I mean, they used to believe back in the day that, that your brain chemistry dictated your thoughts, but now they're saying that your thoughts will dictate your brain chemistry. And he was saying that if he could get them to, be, to have hope and to get them to, to be thankful for things, that they can begin to get off some of the medication that they're on. Now, I'm not telling you to fire your doctor or to quit your prescription, but I'm just trying to share that this is so powerful that science has caught up with the Bible for once and confirmed that this is true, that if we take our eyes off the problem, sometimes that's the best thing that we can do. I mean, I've, I've heard even in a, like a healing crusades that you know, people come and they, they have these problems. And I've, I've heard of stories that pastors share that you know, when you know, that person will come and they'll see someone in a wheelchair and they'll be like, oh, like, you know, maybe I'm not so bad after all. And they'll begin praying for that person. And in that moment, God heals them. It's like God had to take their focus off of themselves for a moment and onto someone else so that God can do some work. That's just, that's just strange, but I think it's just that illustrates of what happens when the presence of God, when we, when, we, when we focus on Him and not on the problem. And I wanted to do another table talk real quick. Um, let's be honest and let's be real. Is there, what problem or issue in your life is drawing your attention away from God? And so we're going to do three minutes, and so go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Okay, so yeah, we, we all face problems, we all face issues that kind of take our focus off of God, but sometimes we have to, we have to like almost learn to be still and be silent before the Lord, like almost quiet ourselves and, and to be still and know that He's God. That takes a, a discipline. It's like we are so busy and we're so focused on the, the issue, it, we lose sight of it, but we got to kind of wrap up. In verse 8, it says, Was it in anger, Lord, that you struck the rivers and parted the sea? Were you displeased with them? No, you were sending your chariots of salvation. You brandished your bow and your quiver of arrows. You split open the earth with flowing rivers. The mountains watched and trembled. Onward swept the raging waters. The mighty deep cried out, lifting its hands in submission. The sun and moon stood still in the sky as your brilliant arrows flew and your glittering spear flashed. Here we begin to see the imagery of God as a divine warrior, right? Maybe you haven't heard that title, but uh, God is seen as a warrior, a divine warrior who subjects nature with his power. He's a, a warrior who goes out and rescues his people, we see that God's power, it parted the, the Jordan and the Red Sea to bring salvation to his people. In verse 9, his power is illustrated by a bow and a quiver of arrows which signify his divine judgments and a sworn oath to employ his weapons for his purposes. Actually, uh, in the flood story, the rainbow in Hebrews translated as war bow. And so when God sees it, it's like, it looks like a bow that's not pointed to the earth, which is a good thing because we, we don't want to get flooded again. But that's like what it symbolizes. It symbolizes the, the bow of divine judgment. In verse 10, we, we see his power. It causes mountains to shake 
on their foundations. In verse 11, his power caused the sun and the moon to stand still as Joshua pursued his enemies. That's wild. That's unbelievable. Now, I know that this imagery of the divine warrior, it it might bother some people. But I actually think it's more bothersome to be passive when evil is advancing. I think that's more disturbing. I mean, I, I've heard like there was a, a bunch of pastors in Germany before, and when Hitler was taking power, that they had an opportunity to stand against it, but they like completely capitulated and they just kind of went with whatever Hitler wanted them to believe. It was like to change their theology. It was something that I can't. I can't exactly remember what it was, but like they didn't even, they didn't even fight it. They didn't resist it. Now, I think there's something disturbing about that. When somebody is just passive, when somebody is just passive, uh, my friend and one of our missionaries at Journey in Slovakia, Noah, he said to me one time that God is not a tame lion, right? Like he's not this tame lion. We have this picture of Jesus and the lambs that we love to see. Oh, that's so cute and you know, I like to pet those lambs, and they're fluffy. But then I found a picture of a lion, like a mean-looking one. You know, even when people paint the lion of Judah, it's like it looks like a lion that you can pet and that you would just love to snuggle next to you. But look at that thing. That thing would eat you. I mean, what's kind of funny is that Noah, who said this, God is not a tame lion, he said that he was able to go into a cage with a lion, that somehow, some way, that there was this place in Slovakia that you could, like, go in and be into a, in a cage with a real lion. And he said when he got in there, the thing just looked at him and pounced on him. And so he didn't really take his own advice. I mean, you can't tame a lion. I mean, you think that thing is like your kitty cat? That thing is going to eat you. So God isn't tame, but we know he's good. And we've kind of lost this reverential fear of God. We, we, we've started doing things in our society and the world that no longer bring honor to his name. And when we begin to live outside of his will and purposes for our lives, we reap terrible consequences. We reap terrible, terrible things because of our actions. Let's continue and kind of close up verse 12. It, it continues on this theme of divine warrior. It says, you marched across the land in anger. You trampled the nations in your fury. You went out to rescue your chosen people to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked and stripped their bones from head to toe. Wow. With his own weapons, you destroyed the chief of those who rushed out like a whirlwind, thinking Israel would be easy prey. You trampled the sea with your horses and your mighty waters piled high. So what this describes is not just this unbridled anger, but this divine anger or righteous anger that serves a purpose. And its purpose really, we see it all throughout the Bible, is to crush the wicked and bring deliverance to his chosen people. See, we we see this theme, especially in... um, the book of Revelation, right? It says that the Lord rules over the nations with a rod of iron, that he's, one day he's going to make all things right, that the nations that are in rebellion will be judged, right? And the, and the righteous shall inherit the earth. But something that has brought a lot of clarity to my life is uh, this pastor, Mike Bickle, in, in Kansas City, IHOP. He said, uh, all of God's judgments are aimed at what is hindering love. There is no contradiction between God's judgment and his love. So God actually judges things that are keeping um, us from living in love. Like you think of the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. 
and strength and to love other people. Well, he's going to judge things that hinder that. He's going to remove those things so that we can live in peace, which is a good thing. I mean, the reason why we're living in, in a world this way is because people are in rebellion to what God has said. It's that simple. And so Mike Bickle said that, and it's, it's really awesome, but uh, we continue to verse 14. Habakkuk retells how God crushes Pharaoh. Right, the story, maybe you saw the, the movie or read it. Uh, he drowns Pharaoh's army uh, in the Red Sea. And it's really in remembering God's past victories that gives the prophet confidence that he will one day overthrow the nation of Babylon in the future. I think one of the most powerful things we can do is bring into remembrance what God has already done in our lives. I don't know if anybody keeps a journal or writes down some of the, the things that they've seen. I do myself, and sometimes I'm blown away. And to be honest, like, a lot of things that God has done in my life, I would have forgotten if I did not write it down. And I, I love sometimes just going over my journal and just reading some of the, the th answers and some of the things that I've seen him do, because it gives me faith for the future. Just like Habakkuk, he, he's knowing full well what's about to happen. This evil nation, this wicked nation, Babylon, is going to come in judgment of Israel, and yet he has his... Uh, hope that and belief that that God will one day judge the nation of Babylon and that they will be overthrown because he looks into the past and sees well he's done it before if he, if he did it then he can do it now and kind of the the last key I want to I want to share is that the worship releases God to fight for our behalf Isaiah 49 25 says I will fight for those who fight you. When we draw near to God's presence, we hide ourselves in him. We, he's able to fight for our behalf. And I had this question, I, I wonder how many battles we've lost or how many battles I've lost because we didn't know how to hide ourselves in him. I mean, I just think about that, like how many battles have I lost in my life because I tried fighting them in my own strength? Right? Or I kind of ran ahead of what the Lord wanted me to do. But David's secret was, if you, if you read um, the Old Testament, was that whenever he would fight a battle, he would always inquire of the Lord. He would always ask the Lord, like, okay, like, what, will I be successful? And what strategy should I use? Like, and sometimes the strategy that God used in one battle would be completely different in the next one. But I want to close us tonight, and we're going to sing one more song, so I'll invite the worship team. This, this was a message about praise and the power of praise. And I wanted to end with one song tonight because I, I want us just to, to kind of just take our attention maybe off of the problems that we have or, or really just allow ourselves to enter in his presence. Um, this amazing road map to unlocking his presence is found in Psalm 104. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Like, if, if we can just turn our hearts and begin thanking him, if we can just begin to, to praise him even before we see the answer, to live from that place of expectancy, I, I guarantee you that you will begin experiencing more and more of his, his presence in his life. And so I just want to pray for us and invite God's presence in a, 
a real way, and we're going to sing this uh, powerful song tonight. So, Father God, Lord, we just ask you to come. We just ask you, Lord, to, to do what you did in the past. Lord, we believe you can do it again. God, the answers that you brought into the past, or the answers that, that you brought, that you can do those things again. That the, the mountains that are, are standing in front of us, Lord, that you could level those in a second, in a heartbeat. But Lord, what you're asking of us now is to, to just fix our eyes on you. To turn the affections of our heart back to you. And so God, I just pray, Lord, that your presence would be so real tonight. That for those um, who haven't experienced that, that they would just have a breakthrough in your presence, God. It may not be tonight, maybe may when they sleep or in their devotion tomorrow or, or during this week, Lord, but I just pray, God, that they'll have such a real encounter that you'd become real to them, Lord. And God, we just lift up our voices and we, and we lift up our song to you tonight in worship. And we say this in Jesus' name, amen.